Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet award-winning poet and teacher Irene Blair Honeycutt, who reads from her collections Beneath the Bamboo Sky, Before the Light Changes, Waiting for the Trout to Speak, and It Comes as a Dark Surprise. Elder Hirsch says of Beneath the Bamboo Sky that following the staggering loss of her last two siblings and several dear friends in a short period of time, Irene bravely enters the domain of the dying and comes back with a touching testimony of loss, grief, sustenance, and consolation. These themes and Irene's thoughts on the craft of poetry from her years of writing and teaching are the focus of this episode. Irene starts by reading the preface from Beneath the Bamboo Sky, where she lets us know how she wrote to cope and, as Robert Frost suggests, to bring order to the chaos. When my new therapist, Susan Sabatini, first learned that I had lost my last two siblings and several dear friends within the course of a few years, she said, this is staggering. Add to this a diagnosis of follicular lymphoma in 2010 and the loss of my nephew, who was only 43, and you get a fuller picture of the range of losses that sent me reeling. Both my therapist and my oncologist heard and understood my bereavement. Since there were no members of my immediate family with whom I could share the loss of my last and oldest sibling, Ralph, one way I coped was by establishing rituals. I wanted to be with Ralph for as long as I could on this side of his journey. After telling a close friend that I planned to push the button of the crematory, she looked me straight in the eyes and said, It's like striking the match leaping back to ancient times that would ground me for this sacred moment. And she added, it's reverent. My oncologist, Dr. Carazosa, also affirmed my rituals, suggesting a few himself. During one office visit, I said, when my parents died, I felt orphaned. When my brothers, Ronnie and Ray, died, I was devastated. But losing my last sibling is like being swept away in a tsunami. Dr. Carrizosa clearly saw this as ongoing grief. You need to ring some bells to help relieve your stress, he said. I was astonished because just a few weeks earlier I had actually begun a ritual of ringing Tibetan bells. He added, and write. People don't often talk about the death, dying, grieving process. Most don't want to face it. I followed my intuition, listened to dreams, paid more attention to synchronicities, poured out feelings in journals, wrote essays, vignettes, poems, fragments. I wrote, as Robert Frost suggests, to bring order to chaos and to honor life by giving voice to sorrow and joy. And I felt bolstered by Edward Hirsch's words, we are deepened by heartbreaks not so much diminished as enlarged by grief, by our refusal to vanish, to let others vanish without leaving a verbal record. Mourning has a cause. Many of us are carrying the dead around with us, and we should not feel ashamed of that. 
During her long tenure as a teacher at Central Piedmont Community College, Irene Blair Honeycutt received the Award for Excellence in Teaching and founded the Spring Literary Festival, which expanded into Sensoria. Upon her retirement, the college honored her with the establishment of the Irene Blair Honeycutt Distinguished Lectureship, the Irene Blair Honeycutt Lifetime Achievement Award, and the Legacy Award. Irene is the author of four books of poetry. Her first, It Comes as a Dark Surprise, Sandstone Publishing, 1992, won the New South Poetry Book Series Regional Contest. Her third book, Before the Light Changes, Main Street Rag, Publishing, 2008, was a finalist for the Brockman Campbell Book Award. She received Creative Loafing's Award for Best Contribution to the Improvement of Charlotte's Literary Climate and was the Charlotte Writers Club's first recipient of the Adelia Kimball Founders Award for Advocacy for Writers. Irene received a Creative Fellowship from the Charlotte Arts and Science Council and a North Carolina Arts Council Scholarship to study at the Prague Summer Writers Workshop in the Czech Republic. Though she retired from college teaching, Irene continues to teach writing workshops, mentors individual writers who are working on their poetry, and is working on her fifth book of poetry, which may or may not be her new and selected poems. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Irene, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks. It's good to be here, Landis. <laughs> yeah. So, Irene, we're going to be talking a lot about poetry today because you spent sort of your lifetime uh, teaching and writing poetry. And this book you read from to start the show, Beneath the Bamboo Sky, you dedicate to your three brothers. Yes. And their names? Ralph, Ronnie, and Ray. Okay. Now, they all died in close proximity to one another, 2005, 2010, 2012. So mm-hmm. that must have been a difficult time for, for you in your life. It was. It was yeah. a very difficult time. And um, as I read from the preface, um, my therapist said it was staggering. Um, I lost several of my best friends during that time, too. Um, so it was almost as if I didn't have time to grieve. I would be knocked down, and then someone else would die. And But as I said in the preface, too, when my oldest brother died, the last of my siblings, it, it really did feel like a tsunami. And then came along... Steve, my nephew that was 43, died, and we had been very close friends. He had been my movie buddy. So Mm -hmm. during that particular time period, it was as if a lot of my foundations were just Mm -hmm. shaken. Yeah, crumbling right under you. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about this idea of writing through grief in just a moment. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, uh, a bit of a happy note. I went to the back of the book, all right, and there's a picture back there. And it says, from left to right, Rusty, Ralph, Irene, Ronnie. I'm assuming Rusty's the dog. Yes, <laughs> he is the dog. <laughs> okay. And then below this picture, and, and you're in the backyard, you're all on your knees, there's a clothesline behind you. Mm-hmm. So where's this picture taken? It's taken in the backyard of the home we grew up in in Jacksonville, Florida. We had uh, great, great fun. And we had wonderful woods out back in which we played a lot. Yeah, we're going to talk about play because mm-hmm. you, you, you weave that into your to your poetry. But you're all very young. You're all under 10 years old. But then you got a picture underneath of Ray because he wasn't around at the time of the picture. He wasn't around uh, at that time. Um, he he was the kid brother. He came along later. Looks like he's got a little youth bomber jacket on or something. <laughs> he did. We love that picture. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So it sounds like you're very close to your brothers. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And they looked after you and you looked after them and you stayed in touch over the years as well? Uh, uh, sometimes. sometimes. There were times, and I write about that too, um, with um, one, my oldest brother, actually, um, he would disappear 
and Ronnie, the middle brother, we often would call and say, have you heard from Ralph yet? No. And uh, we used to talk to him when he would show up again. It, it, there was a lot of distance, um, which made some people wonder when he died why I grieve so much, because they said, I thought you um, didn't get along all the time, and I thought, what has that got to do with <laughs> exactly. was that, grief? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, spe speaking of grief, um, mm -hmm. you know, in your opening read, you refer uh, to, to Robert Frost, and you talk about honoring life by giving voice to sorrow and joy. Was that a difficult task to try to do both in one writing to give voice to both the sorrow and the joy of, of your mem memories of, of your brothers? Um, the, I would say the difficult task was, of course, writing about the sorrow. It's easier to write about joy. But um, the grief, um, it, was, it was very difficult. Sometimes when you think about the joyful times though you start to miss right what uh, what you had and so that leads to some sorrow in and of itself and, and, it does it um, creates that um, sense of longing that sometimes you just wish you had an opportunity to uh, call and talk to someone that you've lost or um, to enjoy traveling to see them uh, you hear some music on the radio takes you back to that time sometimes i will now uh, if i hear a certain song on the radio unexpectedly i'll just go over and and close my eyes and stand by the radio and and just drink in the music because it takes me right right there but one of the beautiful things too about music as well as poetry is um it helps you through the grief and, and with ronnie i'm thinking now because we had you know so much fun um, when I hear, I just heard the William Tell Overture okay. <laughs> the other night. And uh, when we played when we were little, he was, um, I was the Long Ranger. And okay. he was Tonto, if that's okay to say. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so hearing the William Tell Overture is. I thought a, you were going to say he was the horse or something. <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you, you know, you did tell me something before the podcast here um, about uh, how, you know, these memories sort of surface that uh, I think you said the yearning kind of returns unexpectedly and you want to then pick up the phone and maybe call them or, or, or drive over to see them, you know, and you start to think about things that you've done together and then suddenly it hits mm -hmm. you. And, and when I was thinking about that a lot, having lost my father, it immediately brought some memories to mind for me. And, it, and it's an emotional thing to try to, you know, when those emotions come to the surface, uh, and you say, yeah, I, I want to give Dad a call and see, you know, you can give your brother a call, and then suddenly, you know, you're focused uh, on the here and the now. Mm -hmm. Now, you said, too, that um, that you had this this poem that you liked, uh, Charles Wright's poem, and where he described grief as a floating barge boat who knows where it's going to moor. Mm -hmm. why, why do you like that? And how does that speak to you and what you're trying to do here? Well, that is a line from one of his poems. I read it in The New Yorker. Uh, it was shortly after Ray, my kid brother, died. That would have been in 2012. And I had um, was sitting in the office waiting on a friend. I had gone with her to the doctor, and I read that poem, and that particular line just leaped off the page. Grief is a floating barge but you never know where it's going to moor and, and that is the way grief is and it's that's the same way poetry is I mean we could substitute the word poetry we could say poetry is a floating barge but I was actually thinking about that this morning this is a little bit of wordplay that's fine that's what we're here for um because I think writers especially I think I would say in particular poets are always playing with words. Um, you're trying to get the, the best word in the best order, Coleridge. You're trying to um, get the poem that has the connotation that you're after. And I was thinking this morning, I had never thought about that line. And, and again, this is the way good poetry is, I think. It goes on having meaning. You can read it one time and it means something, and then another time and it 
goes deeper. So this morning, thinking about that barge boat, I had never really compared it to an ocean liner. Hmm. But I thought, what would happen if he had written, grief is a floating ocean liner? <laughs> be a lot, of, be a lot of people on that boat. What they'd be <laughs> trying, trying to get on and off too. <laughs> yes, uh, and, and which one would you rather be on? Yeah. I mean, the, I think I think from, I'll take the barge boat. Me yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, me too. I think there's a mystery. I think it's um, you never know where it's going to moor. And you talk about that not knowing, not knowing, and mm-hmm. not. And you talked about not abandoning the boat. That is, this boat is sort of filled with grief. You're moving along. Yes, you, you could easily get off somewhere, but exactly. you're, you're staying on. You have to. You're trying to get mm-hmm. through it, and you're not sure where it's going to land. And that's the way mm-hmm. being on the river with poetry is, that uh, poetry will take you deeper. I remember Natalie Goldberg saying that if you're going to write, you've got to be willing to be disturbed. And that's when a lot of people want to jump ship. Mm. Uh, you want to leave the boat. Um, and that's okay. Some people, um, if that's, that's their choice. Uh, I think poetry, if you want to go deeper, you, it requires a certain amount of um, stick-to-itiveness. It requires courage, dedication. You have to stay in the zone. Um, and you mentioned this zone. I was, I was, you talked about how, you know, when you're deep in the zone or when a writer is deep in the zone, mm-hmm. they should follow that river of writing wherever it takes them, right? Uh, is that kind of uh, like like hooking arms with your muse and taking off and just seeing where where you end up? Yes, or, or it takes you and drags you. <laughs> I think it's more that. The news news drags you along. Um, Uh, Yes, I remember uh, when I was working on the BAM, I'll call it the Bamboo Book, uh, just to be brief with that title. Um, But one particular stanza in one of the poems about my brother Ralph, I think I must have spent at least 40 hours on that one stanza trying to get it right. And every time I worked on it, it would take me right back to the, the moments that I was writing about, and this is the power of poetry, too, and what I mean by not jumping off the boat, because every time I went back to it, I would cry mm. and grieve. Um, but y- you have to stay with it, and I remember I was in the zone one day, and I must have worked for hours that particular day on this poem. I didn't work 40 hours straight like a 40-hour week, right. but over time, I figured I must have spent at least 40 hours on that particular stanza. So I was working on this poem uh, one day and for several hours, and I forgot it was the 4th of July until I heard the firecrackers. I mean, you get so intensely involved in a a poem, uh, and you stay in that zone. And then if you're called away from it, like if you have to go to an appointment or to a movie with somebody, um, sometimes you're afraid. You're afraid that you won't get back into that zone. Does that make sense? That yeah. I, I, no, I've, I've fallen victim to being in the zone before, not writing poetry, but mm-hmm. writing prose, you know. Mm-hmm. And you look up and uh, your back's aching because you've been sitting there for three, yes. three hours. Uh, but let me shift to something else real quick a minute, Irene, you, because I want to set up this next reading with you. Um, you told me a little story about a friend mentioning to you the need to bring some kind of closure to, to the loss. And you said closure is not a word that you like. Well, I think you said you despise that word. I did. Closure. <laughs> you know, the, the get over it idea was something that you didn't, couldn't latch on to. Can you, can you speak to that? Why it was important to you um, maybe not to bring closure to this, but to write sort of your way through it? I think it's different for different people. And I know despise is a harsh word. Um, and maybe I need to stop saying I despise that word, but I don't like it when it's I don't like it when it's applied to the grief process. Because right, everybody's grief process is different, right? Exactly. Right. And and what one person might find to be closure, right? Another person is finding yes. know, they need to take a little bit longer. And I think um, I don't think there for me and a lot of people, um, and I think we need to change this view of um, what grief is, what it entails, how long it takes. It's not linear, and yet you're given like three days off from work to grieve. Um, I think 
I talked to someone in a restaurant recently, a waitress who had lost um, her son, and she was saying the same thing, that her sister wanted her to get over it. And I don't think you really get over grief. You may lock it out or block it out, but um, I think it's healthy to live with it, to honor it. Um, I think it's, it's a way of keeping, it's a way of tending the loss. Mm-hmm. Um, the memory, uh, keeping it fresh, the person stays alive to us. I would like to add, if, if you don't mind, um, another thought on this that I, I had to learn for myself when I was working on the bamboo book. Um, Joe Pathanti, in one of his reviews, said that um, at times it was almost um, close to being pathological. And um, I thought, well... It was. It was close to it. But fortunately, I was able to pull back. And I'll tell you one thing that helped me. I was in Davidson with a friend, and we went to hear a poet named Christian Wyman. And he had cancer, and uh, he read a lot of the poems he had written about coping with the fact that he was undergoing chemotherapy and so forth. And at one point, he said, grief can become too much a friend. And I thought, I felt as if he were speaking directly to me. It can become too much a friend. So I think there is a point where if you stay with the intense grief too long, it can become pathological. Some uh, people call it ambiguous loss. I heard that term uh, listening to Krista Tippett one day, ambiguous loss, where um, there is no hope of closure. perhaps even no hope for healing. So at some point you do move on, but you don't get over it. Right. Now, one of the we're going to have a short read here from the the last part of the poem that you wrote that's in, I like your term, the bamboo book. (laughs) It's called The Viewing. And while it's not closure per se, it is about Uh being with your loved one at the end, right? Uh Uh-huh. And uh, so just set up the scene. Where are you when you're going to start reading this section? You are actually... In the crematory. In the crematory. Um, I had I called it the viewing. I had gone... This was right after my brother had died. So you're at the funeral home. And in, and in this poem, you're actually speaking to your brother. Yes. Right? Okay, that's the voice you've chosen to use. Okay, so whenever you're ready. After the funeral director moved you into another room, I asked permission to be alone with you, and I viewed you for the last time. We were together, brother and sister, inside the crematory. I talked to you, recalling scenes from our childhood, while studying your new bed a cardboard box. I circled it, imagining you underneath the blue tarp-like blanket ready to spring up and say, this is all a joke. But this was not enough. I lifted the stiff blue coverlet just slightly to make certain it was you in there. Beneath the blue was a sheet of clear plastic through which I could see your forehead, the wavy hair, so like our fathers, and I was satisfied. So, Irene, I'm not sure I could have done what you did there. What was it that made you want to strike the match, so to speak? Well, it became an, um, it had become a new ritual for me. Um, I wanted to be with my brother as long as I could. As I said earlier, I think in the preface, on um, this side of the journey, his journey, and um, <clears throat> we were close, we were distant at times, but his illness near the end of his life uh, brought us back together. It was as though we bonded, as though we were children again at times. We didn't want our time together to end. We realized how much we had in common. And um, I, I just wanted to be there. To me, it was an honor. It was a privilege to see him off. So we're going to be bouncing back and forth between scenes like this 
and scenes that are happier and scenes that allow us to breathe. <laughs> and then we dive back <laughs> into another one. But part of uh, what you talk about honoring life is celebrating these happy memories. Um, and you've got a poem here. We're just going to set it up just a second, which, you're, which you title. It's in the Bamboo Book. It was so like us to play, right? Mm-hmm. And you're pretending in this uh, poem, that's not a very long poem, but that you're pretending to be a reporter, right, with your brother. You're acting as the reporter. At and one point. At one point in the, in, in the uh, poem. But that wasn't the first time you ever played with your brother. One time you right. told me you, you played preacher, right? <laughs> <laughs> were you the preacher in some of the was, play games? When we were little, yeah, yeah. I was the preacher. Are we on? Yeah, we're on. Oh, <laughs> I was a preacher when I was little. Um, I, uh, my mother would um, let me, when I felt like I wanted to preach, I think I, if I'd been a man, I probably would have become a preacher. Uh, instead, I became a teacher. But I was either teaching or preaching well, or it, writing. It, at least they rhyme, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, mother would um, let me use her uh, singer sewing machine. She would put a white linen tablecloth over it and we'd get the family Bible and then Ronnie, my brother would go into the neighborhood and tell our friends that Irina's preaching this morning. So those who wanted to come would come to the bedroom and we also and you know took an offering. Ronnie would pass a little dish. (laughs) (laughs) Now what did they put in the offering? Is this candy or something? No, they put in nickels or pennies. So you you were making money in an early age as a preacher, huh? (laughs) Uh and, and you also told me your brother was um, actually reminded you because you said your brother had this memory. Oh, my older brother. Yeah, he had a, he had a memory that he, he he said that when y'all were out playing and some thought came to you, and this is probably a precursor to what you became as a teacher and a poet. Mm-hmm. He said you would run off and say, "Wait, I need to go write that down." Right? Yes, and that was actually one of the things I miss most about my older brother. I mean, there's no one who remembers me as a child. And he remembered that, and I thought, did I really do that? He said, yes, we'd be playing Cowboys and Indians, whatever, and you would just stop the action and say, I've got to go write this down. And he said you had a little pad you kept on the china closet top of it, and you would go write. And I never knew that. I would love to have that little tablet. But Wouldn't, wouldn't that tablet be valuable today? <laughs> <laughs> Into the mind of little Irene, the reporter, the, the journalist. Uh, yes, the reporter. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've got this um, this poem. It's in memory of Ronnie. It was so like us to play. It was so like us to play till the end of day, running across the same grass, round and round the house, hosing dirt from our feet before going in for supper. It was so like us to play all our lives. It didn't sink in. You were really dying. When Ray called from Florida, said you had fallen on the hospital floor, said you waited for the nurse, felt the energy leaving your body. Many times through the years, you had defeated the big C. Since it was like us to play, I bought an oversized plush platypus, thought you would laugh when your sons and I arrived. Your eyes raced from face to face. I placed the platypus at your feet. When the ambulance came for your transfer to hospice, I followed the stretcher into the night. So like us to play, pretended I was a reporter, hands in the air, waving imaginary pen and paper. Sir, I ask, may I interview you? The play not lost, you turned your head, managed a dramatic no. The elevator doors closed on this act. I looked down saw blood on your lips, and could not say how grateful I was to be standing at your side as the play was ending. That's an interesting uh, metaphor because you and your brothers had played so much together as children to describe the play as ending. Um, Your brothers kind of helped you give you the title of this book, right? Beneath the bamboo yes, sky. Yes, yes. <laughs> because you grew up near bamboo. Right, the yeah. woods out back. What'd y'all, what'd y'all do with all the bamboo? What'd we do with it? Yeah. We built huts. Um, that was one of the most um, fun times, I would say, um, that 
I recall. I mean, many, many times. Uh, we each had our own hut. We had the run of the woods. We um, had bamboo. Remember, this is in Florida, and we had palm. So we would um, build these palm huts and nail them down, batten them down with the bamboo reeds. And um, after we built our huts, and, and our friends in the neighborhood did too, then I was like Nyoka the Jungle Queen, which a lot of people probably never heard of. But um, I used to, we used to go to the matinees on Saturdays, and there really was a Nyoka instead of just Tarzan and Jane. So I played like I was Nyoka, and I would go around and inspect the huts. Now, the huts, were they, did you create roofs with the bamboo leaves too? I mean, is Yes, that a- we bent them down and yeah. kind of battened them down with the driving the stakes of the bamboo into the ground. And then we had an opening. We each could go into our hut, and um, I had palm leaves on the ground, and I had um, my dad gave me a cigar box. And uh, it was became my treasure box, and I took it into the bamboo hut, and I would write there. I had these, these that's in the days when they had those tiny um, pastel-colored mm-hmm. writing tablets. And I would write, I don't know what I wrote, little thoughts, maybe little poems, I have no idea. But I put them in that treasure box, the cigar box, and um, I dug a hole in the ground, put the box in there, and then covered it with the palm leaf like nobody would know it was there. <laughs> like a like a doll with, with, with her bone, right? Yes. <laughs> so that you go back and find it later. Well, I'm looking at your cover of your book here, um, and it looks like the bamboo leaves, but there's a... There's a little opening that you can see to the sky, of course, mm-hmm. beneath the bamboo sky. Mm-hmm. So what does that image, uh, how does that image speak to you? Um, I, I mean, you feel a little bit like you're still in this bamboo hut, but you're looking up to the sky to see something, maybe trying to draw some kind of uh, inspiration from... Well, I actually took that photo one of several years ago when I was in San Miguel, Mexico, at a conference, and we went on a tour... And we were out walking, and uh, there was a little <clears throat> bamboo stand, or at least a stand of bamboo reeds in the in the distance. And so the guide said I could walk over there. And when I walked into that bamboo hut and looked up, it was like I could feel um, the presence of my brothers again. It was like being back in childhood. So it's so much, uh, it's woven into my being and I think it is so much of the play, and um, it's what never leaves. All right, Irene. Before the break, here we're gonna we're gonna take one of these breathers you've got from the book. Uh, it's called uh, Sunday Sweetness. Um, if you would read that for us, please. Sunday Sweetness. I used to think if I were lost on a deserted island, no books to read, no watch on wrist. No calendar in my back pocket. I'd know when Sunday rolled in with the waves because a certain calm would settle inside me. There'd be that lump in the throat Frost spoke of, or the day might begin with a Dickinson slant of light. This morning, I think my dogs must sense it's Sunday. They've been outside shifting from sun to shade for hours without a bark, without a pawing at the door. Such sweetness lies in their quietness, silent as river stones. Bluebirds inspect the new house nailed to the fence, as do the Carolina wrens. Not one makes a claim. I'm rooting for blue, but I'll not make a fuss if wren moves in and sings for its mate. The concrete garden rabbit looks happy next to the pansies. Randall Jarrell liked greeting them at his front door said their studded faces reminded him of his students. Sunday. For a while, the world feels at rest, even though it isn't. Too soon, wind rushes through the attic. Uh, Now we can breathe, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, listeners, so uh, we're going to take a little break now. But when we come back, we're uh, going to... Talk about trout, something that I enjoy. It's coming, mm-hmm. coming from the book, Waiting for the Trout to Speak. We're also going to do a little writing life segment with Irene. We're going to talk about writing poetry. We've got a few more reads uh, today, so uh, please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Renee Gorman, social media coordinator for Social Grit, a digital marketing agency that helps business owners and brands find and share their unique stories in creative ways through social media. And because you might be an author looking to 
you know, expand your community or small business. Today we're talking about building your community on social media. Renee, how you doing? I'm good, Landis. How are you? So I'm fine, but uh, I don't know, this social media thing. How do you build a community on social media? Oh, well, it's a two-part thing. First, you need consistent quality content. And next, you need to actually focus on your community. You need to engage with them, know what they're doing, what value you can provide for them. So consistent means I've got to do it. Yeah, regularly. (laughs) Okay. But quality content, that's sort of where social grit comes in, right? Because I might not know exactly, you know, how to present something in a certain mm-hmm. way. Y'all got experience in that area? We do, we do. And yeah, creating the graphics and that kind of thing. Yeah, thing. exactly. We get into your unique story and we find out about you and your business. And then we do a deep dive into your customers and your community. And that's where we start building content that speaks mm-hmm. to you and your brand. So why do I need to engage on social media? Can I not just not? I mean... <laughs> Ouch, that hurts me. Yeah. Uh, you do need to engage because... First things first, social media is social Mm. and your community is right there and they're listening to you and they want to hear what you have to say. They want to know your story. So for you, Landis, um, you can under, you can tell people where you're at. You can ask them what books they want to do um, next, what they want to understand and hear about you. And you can do that with Facebook polls, um, hop on Twitter and start a conversation. And you can do that even with Instagram stories. Yeah, just getting the stuff out is hard enough. And that's why I'm hiring you guys to help me. And I'm looking forward to that. But uh, so where do people go if they want to get help? from Social Grit, helping them build their community? Uh, You can find us at socialgritmarketing.com and you'll find all of our social handles there as well. Hey, thanks, Renee. Thank you, Landis. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. Hey, listeners, we're back with uh, poet Irene Blair Honeycutt, author of Beneath the Bamboo Sky, Waiting for the Trout to Speak Before the Light Changes, uh, and it comes as a dark surprise. And Irene, we're now going to shift to Waiting for the Trout to Speak. I love the image. It looks like a little uh, a little boat there. There's a little, little water on the, on the cover. Mm-hmm. Um but this, before, as we feed into this book a little bit, uh, you and I talked about this concept of when you're writing pro- poetry, there's, there's an importance of paying attention. The paying attention is important. Can you flesh that out just a minute, what, what you're actually talking about there when you're talking about paying attention? Well, I think it's important for any writer, and especially for poets, um, because, again, I go back to the best words in the best order attributing that, of course, to Coleridge. Um, But when I taught creative writing, I began almost every creative writing class with a poem, once I had discovered it, uh, with a poem by Miller Williams in which he says, uh, let me tell you how to do it, how to write poetry. Let me tell you how to do it. He said, first, notice everything. Just, he, just everything? Everything. But then he goes through and talks about the imagination. It's a very short poem, but he covers a lot of ground. He talks about, you know, writing about the blonde and put a, a mole on her cheek. Um, so it's about being inventive as well. But then it ends with, and when your father dies, take notes somewhere inside. He will forgive you if the line you write is a good one. It doesn't have to be worth the dying. Mm. And there's so much in that for students. I just think it's a wonderful poem about writing, and um, nothing, of course, is worth the dying. But um, I remember when my own father and the book Waiting for the Trout to Speak uh, comes from a poem in the book. It's the title poem. Um, that I wrote about my father. And we're going we're gonna to read that in just a second. Mm-hmm. But, but before that, in the preface, you talked about taking notes. You, you, taking notes. And you, mm-hmm. actually you took your, a group you were teaching, and you took them to a waterfall. Right. And you posed this question, what would I like to do the way my father did? And as they're writing, you as the instructor said, well, I'm going to write too, right? Yes. So yes. The, the, what you're going to read now are your notes mm-hmm. by the waterfall thinking about your father. Mm-hmm. Paying attention. And paying attention then takes me back to these memories that I write about in my journal 
at the waterfalls. My father loved to fish. I never went fishing with him until he had built his boathouse after Mama had died and he had remarried. I marveled at the father I'd never known. I stretch out on the hot rock, and now I see the boathouse rising at the edge of the lake, the silky green lily pads floating near the motor blades. I see the fish scales in the sink. The fillet knife glistens beside the small bream Daddy caught this morning while I was still sleeping. I see him holding the bait, his eyes squinting in the sun, his fingers patiently threading the anchor's eye. I see him making the perfect cast, clearing the cypress stumps. He sits there for hours, patient like that, the way he sat in silence alone at night on the screen porch, smoking his lucky strikes. I see him quiet, and when he turns, sitting like that in the boat, reeling in the trout, when he turns, he asks for the first time if I ever hear from Mama. I am sitting on the boat with my back to him, my throat so tight the words barely come. The next time he will ask about her will be on his deathbed. There he will come out of the coma and ask, when did Laura die? I mean, exactly what time did she die? And then he will go to meet her. To have these sort of vivid recollections, uh, I mean, most children, if they're not interested in fishing, they're not really paying attention to what their dad's doing out in a boat <laughs> on the lake. But uh, you must have been in the boat some with your dad as he fished. Towards the end of his life. You were? But not earlier. Not earlier. My brother, my older brother, went fishing. It's like we grew up in different families. My older brother went fishing with him, but I rarely... This was one of the few times I did. I liked being in the boat. Sure. You liked the water. And uh, he let me, of course, drive it when, at this stage. But... Um, but I never liked. It. I didn't have the patience, and that's where this comes from. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on, Irene. You're, you're a writer. <laughs> well, you, you sit and you write and you oh. sit and you write, and you don't have the patience to try to catch a fish. No, <laughs> I really don't. Um, so what okay. would I like to do the way yeah. my father did? I mean, yeah. to me that was boring at the time. I thought, oh, you're just sitting there in the boat all day, and um, so yeah, it was different. Okay, so let, let's let's do this. You, you, you've turned these recollections into the to, to the poem upon which the book is named, "Waiting for the Trout to Speak." Uh, I'd like I'd like us to move from your recollections, your journal writings, now to the actual poem that has that name. Waiting for the trout to speak. A stone glints like a fish eye caught by the sun. I leave with the memory of water, the sound of it falling off boulders and swirling around slabs of granite, sliding off flat rocks into hollow, beckoning pools. It's the forgotten memory I keep fishing for, one that swims so deep I can never cast far enough, even in dreams. I've glimpsed it sinking behind my father's gaze when I stare at the photograph of me on his knee when I was two. The palm tree at our back seems to wave goodbye, the way it did when hurricanes swept through in September, rushing my toy boats down the gutter. Memory lost so far back, I can't even recall when the conversation stopped in our house. A swift current swallows those shy attempts at words my father sometimes made on the screen porch after supper the smoke from his lucky strike trailing off into the smoldering dark. This summer I framed a snapshot I took of him the year before he died. He looks content there, sitting in the rowboat, shrouded in silence beside the lily pads, waiting for the trout to speak. Now, Irene, confessions on my part. The reason I wanted you to read this, <laughs> uh, two, two reasons. One, I, I've kind of become a trout fisherman I mean I I do that up in the mountains but uh, my father was really attracted to the water and to the beach and, and being in a boat and glancing off to the horizon and uh, it didn't so much matter whether he caught fish he just enjoyed being mm -hmm. out there and have this kind of vision and, the, and when you spoke about this I have this vision of you know when you said content that's exactly 
what he was, content to be in the space, you know, mm-hmm. to be there. Um, all right, we're going to shift to the writing life a second. Uh, we're going to do some writing life questions. Um, your path to becoming a writer and a teacher, you um, you didn't get there right away out of high school. You went into the job world, so to speak, and mm-hmm. then you decided you would, well, you, I'm going to go back to college now, and then you do college, and and then you sort of land in this uh, in this zone, speaking of zones earlier, of being uh, a teacher and a writer. So uh, what what do you think led you to to those 30-some years of teaching? Well, really? I think it goes all the way back to childhood. You know, I going out into the my hut, there was, it was inborn. I, I really do think that teaching is a calling. I think the teachers we remember are the ones who were called to teach, because certainly there's no money in it, just like there's mm. no money in writing poetry. So that, and also being the teacher when I was little, um, I remember even making it like in the ninth grade, suddenly I'm getting a, a memory <laughs> of a, a gray folder we had to turn in a report. And I remember cutting a little rectangular section out of the gray cover and typing in red the title and all, so it would look like a newspaper article. There was the reporter, <laughs> too. And I think in a lot of ways, the, the poet is like a reporter. We pay attention to details. And, and that was one thing when I played. Uh, I was always the detective and the reporter. Mm. I drew the chalk lines and so forth on the, the ground and wrote the article up of the scene for the newspaper. Yeah, you mentioned it is a calling to it be a teacher. A to be mm-hmm. a teacher, but um, what did you get back from working with your students? You know, students often say how much oh. they got from their teachers, but how much did you get back from that being engaged with your students? Everything. I mean, I think that's why uh, people are called to teach. Um, you know, and for one th- one thing, I love studying. I love. Um, reading and learning and it's just unnatural for me that I, I never left school mm. and my teachers were an inspiration to me growing up but students um, I think we feed we feed each other we grow um, Robert Frost said that every poem he wrote um, solved something for him and he learned from them and I think the good teacher I think the dedicated teacher learns from students it's not that um we're there to dispense knowledge. But we, we grow in that process. And every time I walked into a classroom, I forgot everything else. I could mm. be, you know, worrying about something. Or at one time when I was department head, acting department head at the college, I was so relieved to get into the classroom because there I was focused. We were with wonderful literature. We were with their writing. Uh, we were talking about life. This is what good literature is. It, mm. It's life. So the classroom was a live place to be, and it was because of the students. So we're going to talk about craft in a minute, and this question is not a craft question per se. In reflecting about the things that you've learned over the years, uh, obviously you're a much more seasoned writer now Mm -hmm. than you were when you first got started. Is there anything in the particular that jumps to the front of the line that that you think if you'd have known then what you know now, it might not have been as difficult? No. uh, as I still can't um I, I honestly have to say no that because I guess I feel that the whole thing was a process, and you can't rush ahead, even if I had known I mean, yeah, I read great literature, but I couldn't you can't rush voice, you can't rush um any of this i in fact, I think that is a problem with uh, some writers when they're they're new to it, they think. Just find all the answers right away. And, yeah, they've yeah. arrived already, and the, the, they don't look at writing as a, a craft as well as a, an art. And um, I used to tell students in creative writing, a lawyer <laughs> mm-hmm. goes to school and works hard to become a lawyer. He doesn't or she doesn't just put a sign up outside and say, I'm a lawyer. And I think um, it's the same with writing. We have to study, and I, as far as... Personally, I think, I guess I just believe in my life and the way it's unfolded, and I'm not sure that I could have forced anything to happen sooner. 
um, I think voice may be the last thing that comes um, when you can, may I mention Peter Meinke? Sure. Uh, I mentioned Miller Williams earlier. This is another poem I sometimes shared with students in creative writing about um, it's, it's, he takes a lighter approach than Miller Williams. Um, there's a wonderful poem I would encourage people to look up by Peter Meinke, M-E-I-N-K-E. Uh, it's called Recipe. And uh, I'll just skip to the, the end of it. I'm trying to remember. He says uh, something to the effect, uh, Take, tear your anthologies up. You know, tear them to pieces and make mulch out of them. I'm paraphrasing. Um, make mulch out of them and um, get your hands into the dirt and plant the begonias. Um, so I don't think he's saying, you know, the anthologies aren't worth anything. I think he's saying, you know, that at some point after we've studied after we've studied the best and the greats, um, our own voice will come. There comes a time to move away from imitation. There comes a time to move away from trying to be um, a poet laureate. Um, You just become in touch with who you are and what you're wanting to say about your life. So I I love that... um, the metaphors he uses, uses there, tearing the anthologies up, using them for mulch, they're good. And uh, I think each, that's why each book, each poem is something new. You're always beginning. And uh, every poem is a new beginning. You, you never make it. All right, Aaron, before we talk about retirement, because that's part of your writing life story too, right? Because you, Retirement. Oh, retirement, yes. <laughs> before we get there, you, you've got a little poem about that. We're going to read that in just a second. But before we do that, a little bit about craft. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you said that writing can be a form of problem solving, um, also a way to travel through time. How has that worked for you in solving problems and traveling through time when you write do you find yourself um, being transported back or forward in time and do you find yourself being able to resolve issues when you write Um, well that's a tough one too Um, I love Robert Frost actually said that um, he saw poetry I remember seeing a film a documentary of him in which he said that every poem he wrote solved something for him so that's why I latched onto that years Mm -hmm. ago and used it and classes, and then when I started, because really, he's written a few things, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then I, he was kind of, you know, cagey. He in the documentary, um, if, when he was, when someone or a critic you read about him would try to pin him down, you know, he, he had a good sense of humor, and he was very difficult to pin down. So I'm not really sure what problems he solved. Um, I can imagine, I can conjecture. And then when I apply it to me, I'm thinking, gee, what problems did it solve for me? And I'm thinking it's more of a metaphor that, that you come to a clearing. That maybe um, he, Frost said that it's the same if you're building a cabinet, a woodworker. You build a cabinet and it solves something for you. Or he said you might be weaving a basket. He's, he says that's dissimilar to writing a poem. So... I think it's metaphorical that we feel, um, we may feel um, the weight lifted a little. We feel some light come into our lives. And this has to do with craft, too. Uh, He said that uh, poetry is a momentary stay against confusion. And I was thinking about that this morning on the way here. Uh, I started to listen to the um, impeachment inquiry. And then I thought, why am I listening to this? And I turned to music and thought of a momentary stay against confusion. If we ever needed poetry, we need it now. And I think that poetry slows us down. And you talk about using poetry for other things, too, um, the insertion of dialogue into poetry, but also journaling. You used, uh, in It Comes as a Dark Surprise, you've got a poem that's essentially journal notes, right? Yes, journal on, on, notes. On a flight home, uh-huh. you, you were reflecting, uh-huh. and it turned into a poem. And this is one I think you told me, it just sort of, though you can struggle with poems sometimes, sure. this one just sort of came out, and by yes. the time you landed, you had a poem for your <laughs> for your next book, right? Yeah, and for my first book. Yeah, for your first book. So it's only uh, it's, it's less than a minute. I'd like you to read that if you would. All right. 
Journal notes on the flight home. Write about the sheep bells and church bells, about the shepherds coming in from the fields at night, how the beams from their flashlights combed the olive leaves. Write about the barking dogs and always the bells tinkling, how your ears strained to hear through the dark distance, and the slap of water against rocks in the cave's mouth, how the hungry cave gulped the waves, don't forget that, and the way the cicadas shrieked in the willows when the stones went pink and silent on the hill at sunset. Remember the cypress trees that stood tall around the cemetery, guarding the graves with their green truths. So, Irene, I've got this picture here. You're coming home from this trip. You've seen all these uh, sights, and, and, and you tasted and you smell, and you're thinking, well, I know, what, what am I going to write about? Well, let's write about this. Let's write about that. Before you know it, what you've been talking about writing about has turned into a poem in and of itself. Yes, it yeah. was one of those lucky accidents. Serendipitous, right? Yeah. Yes. Does, was... does that happen often in your writing? No. <laughs> <laughs> so you, what you're telling us is harder than that. <laughs> harder than that. Well, at some point in time, after you were a teacher for many, many years, and uh, you know, a beloved teacher who many love, because we've talked about the awards that were named in your honor, um, you had to make a decision, I guess. You decided you were going to retire, and like all good writers, you decided you would write a poem about that, right? <laughs> and this comes from um, your book, uh, Before the Light Changes. So it's called, let's see, I think it's Clearing a Path for Retirement. Yes, Is that right? yes. Okay, all right, let's read that if you would. Well, this one really brings back memories. Clearing a path for retirement. Cleaning out my school office, I label three boxes, trash, file, donate. Already this system bogs down. I flip through Georgia reviews, rediscover poems that might be useful. A phrase of Stafford's catches inspires a session on fairy tales. Follow the golden thread. Where's a box for active? Next come lectures and critiques. Frost, Malamud, Dickinson. A student assistant helps choose. I just can't do it, I say. It's like sending parts of my life to the shredder. Anthologies and textbooks become leaning towers on the floor. In westward wind, I find notes tucked away about my brother's last days. File in to do. Do what? Scribbled messages from the state about retirement dates are tossed. But a 1992 memo outlining objectives for founding a literary festival? Too sentimental. I vote keep. Crammed into desk drawers are paper-clipped photos and bios. Mark Doty. Mary Oliver, and Lamont in dreadlocks. Frame or burn at the stake with old taxes, term papers. I hear Willie Loman's wife, Linda, plead, attention must be paid. There we go again with attention must be paid, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> now, uh, one of these little stanzas here talks about voting to keep a memo about a Literary Festival, a 1992 memo. Well, that's turned into a pretty big festival here in Charlotte, right? Yes, Sen Sensoria. Uh -huh. And it comes every year, right? Uh -huh. And it's uh, Central Piedmont uh, brings in some some really renowned – in fact, it's going to be coming up next week. So everybody should uh, should look online and look at the information and go to that. But uh, how was it to start small with some idea like this for a little festival to have it turn into what it's turned into for you? Well, it's, it's like I had no idea. I, I go back to sitting in my office one day. I can remember clearly when that little memo was written in 1992. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was sitting in my office, and as usual, uh, there was a crisis uh, statewide with the budget, and there wasn't much money, if any, for teachers to travel to a conference. So between classes, I thought, well, if we can't afford to go there, bring them here. And I got on the phone, called the librarian, and said, do we have a room where we could have a workshop in about a year? And she said, yes, we've got one in LRC, Learning Resources. And um, 
that's how it started. We put together the little budget, and I uh, got a few of the administrators to support this, and um, we got uh, some local writers. I can still remember some of them that were on that first um, they gave excellent workshops. I'd like to. I've always thought it'd be fun to have another festival where we featured some of these writers mm -hmm. giving the same workshop, like Danny Romine on interviewing mm -hmm. uh, Eudora Welty and other mm -hmm. famous writers. And um, so, anyway, there were wonderful uh, local writers who have published widely now. So, I set out objectives. Uh, I remember the three basic ones. One was to. Um, feed us, bring somebody here. I feel we need to sit at the feet of others. Um, that's one way we grow, you know, it keeps us from becoming stale. So I wanted to bring, and they also had to be a teacher. They had to have that combination because I felt strongly that they would relate well to students, not be here on an ego trip. And um, we've been very fortunate. I think every keynoter that has come over the years, over 20 years, um, has had that combination, writing and teaching. Yeah, and I hope it stays that way. It, it's a great festival, great opportunity for the students and for members of the public to go yes. and hear some great uh, authors speak about their work. Um, so this path to retirement, mm -hmm. clearing this path to retirement, trash, file, donate. <laughs> Are you still doing some of that? <laughs> Try to, but I get it bogs down. Yeah, I uh, think active keeps gr growing. <laughs> yeah. So one thing, you know, people have a hard time retiring uh, if they've done one thing all their lives. But I wonder if it's a little easier for someone. I mean, I know you miss some things about what you did as a teacher, but you're still able to teach some. You're still able to do some of the things you enjoy mm -hmm. doing, like writing. And too often, I mean, you know, when a lawyer retires, I mean, what the hell are they going to do, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, they got to go do something. Oh, I know, start a podcast, whatever. You know? so, but, I mean, you, you get where I'm going with it. You, you kind of had something you could transcend position into and you're still teaching right yes yeah not and, a lot the, but, the great thing workshops and that kind of thing yes yeah. is um and why why irene after i mean you've retired <laughs> why because you love it you love it and it's um i mean it's just part of who i am if i were doing it when i was little getting yeah. <laughs> the kids in the block you're still preaching to yeah you know, yeah so, yes i'll use my teacher's voice okay <laughs> that's great um, and I guess one last writing life question. Um, as you look back on this trajectory in your life of being able to write and teach, would you change anything about your decision to become a teacher and a writer? No. Why not? Because I, it just is part of who I am. I, I you know, I keep going back to that. It's, um, I wouldn't want to do it. I just wouldn't want to be in a job where I made a lot of money. Um, I didn't have that deep, I don't know what to call it, deep sense of um, humanity, maybe. I don't and know. Pur um, purpose, too, maybe? Purpose, um Something's so satisfying. It's well now I'm coming back to Robert Frost. I, I love his definition of poetry and I think it applies in some way to your question. He said poetry is where emotion meets the intellect and intellect meets emotion. And I wonder really how many jobs do that. I mean there's just there's just something wonderful about being with other writers. Uh, the things we talk about, the working on poems together, and um, it's life-giving instead of draining. Now, there are things about teaching that are draining, Oh yeah, but, but we won't go there. <laughs> no, and you don't have to go there now, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, and, exactly. Okay. All right, Irene, we're going to end on, uh, on a happy note here of another vacation. You're not doing journal notes now, but you're out in California. You wrote this poem. Uh, and the title is? It's a question. What's, oh. What sustains? Okay. Could you read that for us to bring this uh, episode to a close? Mm-hmm. What sustains? Arcata marshes for one. Host of cattails. Brown reeds bowing over green-winged tills. 
Colonies of black-crowned night herons huddled in trees, resting red eyes for dusk. Salt grasses, brush strokes on the surface of no-name pond. Leaves that willow their way back, light up like candles. Shadows playing origami on your shirt as you sit cradled in a tree, leaning away from the path. Ripples of water carrying your thoughts to sea. All right, Irene, we mentioned we got Sensoria coming up. Uh, Who's the headliner this year? The Poet Laureate of the United States, Joy Harjo. Oh, wow, that's that's, that's big. And So you arranged that? I recommend it. I I recommend. Okay. And other people recommended her as well. We're really excited about having her, a Native American. All right, listeners, go go out to Sensoria. Go, uh, uh, Irene, you're going to be walking the halls and going to these things too, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Exactly. exactly. So, uh, Irene, listen, I want to thank you for uh, your many years, your contributions to the community, your teaching, and also for – spending a little time in the studio with me today on Charlotte Rivers Podcast. Well, thank you. It's All of that's been a joy, and I really appreciate all that you're doing for the writing community. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.